brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. All right, everyone. This week's episode is going to be another banger. I'm excited to welcome a, a longtime friend of mine and somebody that has known me since 2009 and has known all the nitty gritty, dirty, everything that has happened. I happen to have it happen with, alongside my friend, Chris Watson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you uh, in a way that other people are going to get to see because I talk about you guys uh, yeah. or I did talk about you guys a lot up until last year. Um, and I'm starting to do it again because I think the thing I realized was that there are people in this world that need to be talked about, not because they're some huge, you know, movie star or whatever, but they are people who have done things in this world that go unnoticed and unsaid and unspoken about. And those are the people that are really doing the hard work, the dirty work, and they're the ones that are keeping everyone safe. When I got to know you, you were a medic for the British military. Um, and that is how we became friends. So I knew right away, when I could finally get you guys to talk and by you guys, I mean, the guys that I served with the British, I knew it was going to be special, not only for me, but I was hoping for you because it has been such a long time coming and I am really grateful okay. to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you. So let's get right into it. You have served, well, you did serve for roughly around what, 13 years, 13 years. Yeah. My last day was Tuesday just there. My official oh, wow. last day in the military. Yeah. So quite fresh. <laughs> that is quite fresh. Yeah. I know that you you kind of went in and out and then you did some contract work, but let's bring it all the way back to a little bit earlier on in your life. I'm kind of curious how somebody like you decides that they want to join the military. Is it that they came from a military background family or is that something that you, you know, kind of came to on your own? See, see, I grew up in the 90s where I think we... Uh, you know, just as yourself, I think we were all affected by the TV at that time. And I grew up watching the ER. So I was destined. I had it in my head, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. And then when I got to a certain age, which was 13, 14, I thought to myself, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. So my backup option was I, I loved journalism. I really wanted to be a journalist. 
and be like the combat guy that goes around, you know, to different war zones and records and, and had that 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 was my dream. And then once again, I had no intention in joining the military, but then the London bombings, 7-7-2005, that all changed. And I just felt a overwhelming urge of duty, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing like most uh, guys after 9-11, you know, the day after the, the clears offices were all, you know, big cues out of them. But I, but that was the same for me. You know, I just felt a massive, overwhelming sense of duty to my country, queen and country, and a little bit of revenge, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, a lot of people, they have that feelings when I speak to them. Um, I ask them often that question and the, the response is, you know, 9-11, 9-11. But obviously, 9-11 for the UK and for Scotland and Ireland wasn't quite the same hit. I think it was yeah. still very impactful, but you guys had your own version of it. Can you kind of explain what the London bombings were for those individuals who aren't quite sure? London bombings were, were held back in 2005. And it was two separate attacks at the same time. Uh, two different bombers. One was on the, on the tunnel system, so on the ground. Uh, it's like a tram system, like a train. And the second one was on a double-decker bus, which was just full of people. And they simultaneously detonated, uh, I think, killing over 25 people, which is obviously not as big as 9-11, but it's personal to us sort of thing. And that was kind of like the start for it. If that makes sense, like the start for me, because terrorism wasn't really a big thing for in, in the United Kingdom, apart from you know, the IRA and stuff like that. But I never knew anything about that. Uh, but then when that happened, that was personal. And since then, I think terrorism stepped up in different countries and, and the UK, attacks-wise. So that was just a big personal moment in my life where I had to make a decision. How And how old were you in 2005? I was 15. Uh, when it happened, I was 15 and eight months, and you cannot enlist until you're 15 and nine months. So I had a month to push. Okay, so explain to me how this works for the British military, because uh, it seems like a lot of people in the UK that I've spoken to, they they finished high school earlier than the rest of, say, North yes. America would, and you guys are able to go and work and to do different types of jobs much earlier. So can you kind of go through that? In the UK, we can leave high school at the age of 14. Um, that's mostly to go on to college because we can go to college uh, two years earlier than most uh, like most other countries. So that was my plan initially because I left school already before, actually about two weeks prior, I left school to go to college and then it happened sort of thing. But we can leave at 14, 15 or in your last year, you can leave early as well. And we, we can work now, I think it's 15 and 10 months is the minimum working age now for us. Um, but yeah. Okay. That's an interesting, that's just, uh, it's crazy that you're allowed to make a decision like that when you're barely gone through puberty, you're going, ah, fuck it. You won't need that. You won't need (laughs) any of that high school education. Just leave. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting to me that you guys are able to do that. We could never, oh my God. Can you imagine if North America, if somebody just said they're leaving high school at 14, (laughs) Yeah. there'd be no chance. There's no chance that would happen. There's just, no. So for for you guys, you joining, you joined fairly early on then. So take me through that process and conversation with someone's family when they're like, I'm leaving, especially Uh, after an event like this. I didn't really tell my parents that I went to the careers office and had the interviews and all that sort of stuff. So I I went through the entire recruiting process. uh, And then before 
I go through phase one basic training, I have to get a signature from my parents. So for two months, completely lied. I was like, no, yeah, I'm going to my friend's house for the weekend, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't. I was going down uh, south to do the selection process, which was like a weekend long. Uh, I pre-took photos of me and my friends so I could send them to my family. Like, yeah, yeah, look, we're having fun. Oh and, then, uh, <laughs> and then after I passed the selection process, uh, they said, okay, we've got a training slot in a month. Do you want it? Because uh, that would have been after my birthday. Uh, sorry, after my 15 years and nine month point where you can legally enlist. So I was like, yeah, sure, yeah. Okay, but we need a signature. I was like, shit. Um, so one day I just sat him down and I said, listen, basically, you know what's happening in the United Kingdom and around the world just now. I feel like I need to step up and do something here. I'm not exactly the smartest cookie in the jar sort of thing. Uh, my mum agreed with that, which was like, okay. And then I was like, listen, I went through the selection process for the military. Can you sign my sheet? And it was met with resistance, as it would do, you know, the usual, oh, do you know what's going on in the world? And I was like, I do know what's going on in the world, hence why I want to do my part sort of thing. In the end, she loved it and signed as long as I went to a trade position. Mm. So I enlisted as a driver. And then as soon as I got to my basic training, I was like, can you put me in the infantry? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, we need you. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and they didn't know I moved over to the infantry until my graduation parade. They're like, what the fuck? Goodbye, were... good to war. Oh, no, no, but, no. Yeah. And there's nothing they could do at that point. A choice at the end of the day. Uh, fair enough, I wasn't old enough to make that choice, as you said, but it's just what felt right at the time. I think it's, listen, I think when it comes to the age thing, it's different. I mean, it's very interesting because I yeah. look back now at my life and I look back at some of the people that I knew when I was 18 years old. And I yeah. try to think about, would they have been able to make that decision? And there's no chance. Like we, we so quickly in our society are so easy to give someone a gun and say, you can go and fight a war for us. But yeah. most of the time, those people aren't even old enough to vote. They're not old enough to buy alcohol. They're not old enough to get a mortgage or you're not even old enough to go rent a vehicle in North America. Sure. You have to be like, think the 25 to do it. So, but it's, it's funny how we're so quick to say it's okay for our youth and our next generation and our children who really don't have enough education on even what's going on in the world to go make a decision that will ultimately play a massive part in either their development and their lives, or will give them a lot of grief going down the road. So it's just, it's just a different, it's a different way of looking at things, um, especially in wartime. And obviously when I say wartime, I'm not talking the similar type of wartime as, you know, World War II and Vietnam, where, you know, the draft and all those things were in. I mean, yeah. although kind of jumping forward, although we're getting pretty close to that point right now with, you know, with the next war and the conversations being had about it, just small tangent here. I saw very recently in the past, I think it was the past couple of days um, online that they were saying, even if you're a transgender female and you were born a male, you will have to sign up for the draft in North America. And that was the first time I started hearing, forget the transgender side of it, what kind of caught my attention was the word draft and the United States using the word drafting, because to me, that says we're about to get into something that's going to require so many more individuals that that might have to become 
what happens next. And I think that's where we're headed, unfortunately, just based off of the current circumstances in uh, Ukraine and Russia and it, and how that is kind of escalating at a very rapid, dangerous, scary pace, in my opinion, um, all because of this lovely thing we call ego. So, you know, it's super fun to watch uh, the next generation kind of go through what we did 20 years ago, except I find the difference was we didn't know any better as in now we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, I would like to think we learn from every war, but that is very apparent that we don't. And um, anyway, I digress. My point is when okay. someone, when they, someone joins uh, at that age, there's still very much a developing mind. And so to have that conversation with your parents and say, hey, I'm going to go do this because I can imagine Chris that you in that time frame. Because so which year was this that you ultimately joined and went off to training? I enlisted, uh, I signed uh, my, my contract in December 2005 and I was away in training in mid-2006. Yeah, so I mean, you were young, the, the mental well-being of yourself, your brain was not developed, obviously. Um, so the decisions we're making at that time were predominantly rage-filled ones with wanting to, you know, yeah. kind of go out so. and, and yeah, exactly. So at that time though, also we were all very much engaged in the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so where, what was the stance of the British military from 2000, from 2005 on? To be honest, like nothing was really said much in my training group circle wise about Afghanistan. Because it was still quite a shadow war, if that makes sense. You know, everything was mm -hmm. Iraq, 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 Iraq. Uh, so I never thought I was going to end up in Iraq, to be honest. Um, my battalion was due to go to Iraq as I graduated training, but I was too young. So but we started extra training towards it and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, Afghanistan didn't really come apparent until I think about 2007 when they said to you, make sure you might end up in, Iraq, in Afghanistan sort of thing. I was like, where? <laughs> Who? Sort of thing. Because uh, I, I generally thought it was Iraq and Kosovo was winding down and Ireland was winding, out, winding down for us as well as operational deployments. So it wasn't really a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. For the for the listeners that are American and otherwise, um, can you kind of explain, because I know people are just going to hear you say the word Ireland and go, yeah. there's a war in Ireland? <laughs> Can you explain, uh, yeah. you've grown up around this, so this has been a part of your life where this has been an ongoing issue in Ireland, Northern Ireland now for quite some time. And yeah. I, I have to admit that I didn't know much about that until I actually deployed and got to know the British and understand what was going on. So can you guys give us an overview of what is going on or has been going on in Northern Ireland, say for the past like 30 years? The last, <laughs> yeah. a lot, for the last 100 years or so, but uh, basically, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom sort of thing. Uh, up the Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom, but the, the Southern Irish want that part back. But the problem with that is the Northern Irish people are fiercely loyal to Britain. But they're called loyalists for a reason. They're, they're fiercely loyal and they don't want to change sort of thing. So there's always like... Uh, car bombings going on, 
British troops who were deployed obviously were getting it was just like Afghanistan but in Ireland without certain components of it but that's what it was it was them committing terrorist attacks atrocities against British troops because they wanted Britain gone completely from the island and uh, the deployment stopped in 2007 because we achieved a level of security there that we wouldn't have to go back sort of thing Mm-hmm. But it's actually starting to flare up a bit. Uh, actually, the night before we deployed on our tour in 2009, two guys were gunned down at the gate in Northern Ireland uh, collecting a pizza from Domino's. So the threat is still there. It's not as big as what it used to be. But it all started, um, if you remember, the First World War. Mm-hmm. So literally every single troop got deployed overseas. That's when the Irish made, like, made an assault on Northern Ireland because there's no one there to defend it. So we had to dispatch units back to Northern Ireland to take it back sort of thing. And uh, it was called the Black Dam Ma- Massacre because it was just a massacre. Uh, guys were coming back from France, uh, completely battle-shocked sort of thing, and getting sent into a very like home environment to get rid of people who were essentially invading your home. And uh, yeah, it was complete carnage, basically. But there's nothing... That's- there's been nothing since 2009 which i'm quite grateful for and so it it's going on but it's quiet it's not kind of kinetic at all at this point it's more political now than anything it's nothing like on the streets fighting sort of thing there's no explosions there's nothing like that anymore it's just turning it's in parliament now basically the best way to put it well it seems like that's probably the better place for it it just feels like that would be such an odd place to when i use the word deploy i can't think of i don't think of ireland as a as a place yeah. that you know as a deployment i think of ireland as a place that i want to go and visit not not worry yeah. about things like that but that's understandable um, and makes complete sense so in 2007 that's when they started 2007 2008 that's when they started having conversations with you about you know possible deployment is this yeah. when you stayed infantry and when did you switch over to medic uh, medic was on my second deployment uh, in Afghanistan, but uh, I was infantry. I was part of the first battalion, uh, but the Black Watch needed uh, volunteers to go to Africa with them because they were undermanned, sort of thing. So I was like, you know what? I'm just in battalion. You know, the guys in Iraq. You know, what am I going to do? So I put my hand up and I ended up in uh, Kenya, alongside Stephen Noble and all that stuff. And uh, but we were just training, uh, just doing like environment training, uh, assaults, you know, the usual sort of stuff. We're working closely with artillery and all that good stuff, calling fire missions. And then one night they just said, listen, we're deploying in six months. Do you guys want to come with us? And I was like, you know what? I'll be 18. Sign me up. I'm going sort of thing. And that's how a lot of us from the 1st Battalion ended up going with the 3rd Battalion to or the Black Watch to Afghanistan. Completely by chance. Just um, by fluke. We weren't yeah, we weren't due to go until like, I think it was 2010, 11 sort of thing on our first deployment at our battalion. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to jump on this now and I'm going. And and what was it for you that made you want to go there? Was it that, like you said, there was nothing going on or that you're a team's guy or that you didn't think you would get your chance to go if you didn't uh, go then? It was a few elements to it because uh, I knew that the battalion would be coming back from Iraq, and I did not want to be the guy who did not deploy with them, if that makes sense. 
mm-hmm. you know you come back from deployment and there's these new guys who think they're all that i didn't i didn't want to be that guy so i was like you know what i'm going to jump on it now it's it's quite heavy during like fighting season you know what i'm going to do it sort of thing and i just want to prove myself to be honest and i just didn't want to have the embarrassment of going back to a regiment with no experience them about it makes sense it it makes sense i can understand that mindset i really can the opportunity can arises and then you you want to take it obviously so let's walk let's walk right into that let's just get right into it you deployed when in was it in two that the beginning of 2009 yep 2009 i think it was february 09 we deployed okay so let's talk about that deployment, because for you, for the British, I know um, just having Danny V on, who was somebody else that we served uh, together with, who's a South African. Love he said, "Isn't he great? He's his teeth. His teeth. Oh. Just, oh, and he's he's comical. We we had a really great conversation. <laughs> I can't wait for you to uh, Good, yeah. to listen. But it was the first time him and I had actually talked face to face in over okay, a decade. Okay. So it was a very um." we've been always talking and stuff kind of throughout the past decade, but it was the first time we sat down and had a one-on-one and it was a really great conversation, but let's talk about what that was like, because, you know, from his account and from other individuals that um, we both know, 2009 rocked the British. It, the British really struggled. They got hit left, right, and center in Afghanistan, whether it was the Helmand province or others, uh, the British took a significant amount of casualties. Yep. Okay, so yeah. tell me what it's like the first time you land in Afghanistan, considering. Oh, yeah, sorry. So basically, no, uh, as you know, five minutes before we land, it's all the shutters in the windows of the C-130 or the TriStar you're flying on get shut. The red lights go on. Your body and your body armor and helmet need to go on, sort of thing. So there's no indication of a plane landing on the airfield in Kandahar in case they try and shoot it down. Now at that point, when the red light came on, I was like, "Oh, <laughs> this is getting, this is getting real." Uh, so I had a little bit of heart palpitations and stuff like that and I was looking around to, to see to what I could see sort of thing and I seen a lot of the guys were like you know you know, the leg shaking thing to do or toying with their hands and guys, and these are guys who have been to Iraq Ireland Kosovo before me so I was like well if they're nervous I should be nervous <laughs> like I should be shit myself but I'm excited I, I just can't wait to get off this aircraft and start you know pew pewing sort of thing um, we landed it opened up and it wasn't what I expected, because you know Kandahar, it's like it's a city, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's just a massive city in the middle of nowhere. I thought, okay, this is all right, sort of thing. And but then after that, you know, we went into our quarters and we got a few hours sleep, and then we started getting the briefs about the locations where we would be going. And we were meant to be light roll infantry, so on foot all the time. But we got switched to the air assault, to the to the aviation air assault group. You know, so land, kick a few doors down, grab some people, stay a day or two, then go back to camp, sort of thing. I was like, okay, this is not, you know, this is something that's new to me, so might as well just do it, sort of thing. But I think it was just the initial shock of, is this Afghanistan, sort of thing? Absolutely nothing. As you know, like if you stand on one of the sentry positions in Kandahar and you look out, you're like, where is everything? It's just flat desert. Like, okay, sort of thing. So I wasn't aware that there was like, like a green zone. You know, there was forest areas. You know, there's actual water ponds. You know, there's built up villages, there's cities. So I was like, okay, is this something that didn't just never cross my mind? Sort of thing. 
so it was a massive shock, I would say. By they looks. Sorry? Yeah, by by looks, but they never it sounded like they didn't really brief you much on on what was going on in that country before you guys even took took hold there. We got most of our information from I don't know if you watched Ross Kemp in Afghanistan. No. Have you ever came across that? It's basically this journalist who played who was an actor who played an SAS guy who decided to go out to Afghanistan to be a reporter. And he was involved in quite heavy combat sort of thing around the region. I was like, and that's where we got most of our thing. Like, you you can go to a brief and you know what they're like. PowerPoint, like depth PowerPoint. You'll last about 15 minutes before you fall asleep. And you take in a little bit of it. So you're fine, yeah, okay. But then, but then you watch this like pre-made cinematic, you know, this kind of Afghanistan who's a reporter running about sort of thing. And you think to yourself, oh, well, they're okay. We, we might be in for a little bit of a shock here, sort of thing. So there was like like training and environmental briefs, you know, cultural briefs and stuff like that. But you can't really take on board until you're actually there. You know, it's right. all, it's, it's all going to be a shock. Like you've seen how they treat the people and how people react to you, and nothing can prepare you for that, to be honest. So I think no. everything, everything that we came across, it was just more of a shock to the system, but a learning a learning curve at the same time. So you guys went, um, so you guys got to Afghanistan and you start kicking indoors and, and doing your thing. How long and what was that like up until that point? Because you and I met in June. So I, yeah. I wasn't in country until April. And even then yeah. I was at a fob. So what was kind of going on in the lead up to June for your unit? Well, uh, the first few operations uh, were basically in locations where there wasn't much of a threat if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't any massive recorded ID threat. There wasn't any recorded suicide threats or like, suicide bomber threat and stuff like that. So it was just basically trying to find our foot in. And we did like maybe one every two weeks or so just to break ourselves in because you know how hot the Afghan climate is in the summer. Jesus. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a hot, so hot. It's a, holy, I can't even, I'd never want to come across that sort of heat again. Um, just to get our bodies used to it because we knew it was going to be a hard, a hard operational tour for us. So it was supposed to just train operation sort of thing, uh, get our fitness up to standard. We, we did a few ops where we took in a few prisoners sort of thing, brought, brought back for questioning. We didn't have any major, major firefights because my first firefight when I was with you, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, so it's just basically breaking in for, a, for a, a month or two, just breaking our way into things. And you guys didn't have any major casualties or losses or anything along those lines quite yet? No, not yet. So you at this point were, you were tasked with the Black Watch. So can you explain when we went out on operation, who were we with? (laughs) In what sense? Meaning when we went and we left, what what yeah. did that operation look like? Because from from what I could see is I could see the guys around me. You were all wearing the same uniforms, but yeah. evidently you were all part of very different units, kind of hodgepodge put together. And this guy's from here and from here, and he does this, and he was borrowed from this unit. But it seemed like, for the most yeah. part, it was the Black Watch. Yeah, the Dirty Dozen. Uh, basically, it was, it, we were an infantry unit under the 19th uh, Light, Light Roll Brigade. Uh, but a lot of it, we had a lot of attachments, which you, you came across the artillery guys, we had the medics sort of thing that wear different patches from us, same uniforms. Uh, 
Like, there's a lot of specialist people that come out with your operations, which I never knew about. You know, you get JTACs, um, the forward air controller guys and all that good stuff. But uh, yeah, for the good, most part, you were with the Black Watch. But we've also undertaken SFSG roles, Special Forces Support Group uh, roles. And that was one of the ops that you were on as well. So let's just get into it then. Um, we yeah. can keep we can keep names out of it if you choose. This is up to you. This is because at the end of the day, this is also your story to tell as well. So you and I, just I let me know as, when we're just let me know that? when we get deep. Just let me know. Oh. Just let me know when we're getting deep. I've got my whiskey here. So <laughs> yeah, don't 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 worry. We don't we will we'll go deep, but I'll give you a heads up. Let's just let's just. just start with it. So I got dropped off with you guys and um Danny gives Danny gives a quite a um, intro into how he met me the first time. I did not know he was in the group that I was shit talking officers about, but he was. And he goes, that's how I knew you the first time when you walked up and said, I hate officers. Yeah. I had no <laughs> damn clue. Um, I just knew I was being passed around. We got a briefing. I got dropped off to your side of CAF and that's kind of where everything started. I don't yeah. even remember the moment that you and I met. I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. So I remember walking behind you because I was coming out of the smoking area sort of thing. And all I seen was like a rucksack and legs. <laughs> Just that. It's like, surely this person's got a head on them somewhere. And I was like, all right, okay, so who's this dude sort of thing? And I remember Paul Cowell, uh, the Sergeant Major, he spoke to you sort of thing. And then mm -hmm. he turned, then, then he came around the corner again and I was like, all right, it's not a dude, it's a chick. <laughs> and I had chew in my mouth and I had a cigar. I don't know why, I was just addicted to nicotine at the time. <laughs> and I was like, and I had aviators on, so I thought I was trying to be cool. I was like, yo, I'm Watson, how you doing? And <laughs> you just went, all right, <laughs> hi, sort of thing. Not impressed. But uh, yeah, I remember that quite well because I was between the two command tents that's where i first met you hmm. yeah yeah you guys had quite an interesting little area over where the british were you had your own gate you had your own deal oh, I just remember, yeah you guys were yeah. set up very differently than we were and um i very i remember they just brought me and dropped me off and said like you know go have a go have a few hours of sleep we're gonna kick off just after midnight sort of thing and um was kind of given the follow the bomb dog that was my yeah. briefing that was my Benji. understanding. Yeah. Follow Benj. Don't lose him and you'll be fine. Just do that. That's all yeah. I was told. And I had no idea of the operation itself and what the goal end goal was and how large scale that operation had been. I know, which is interesting. Uh, my very first episode on the show with James, uh, he was a Royal Marine who was ahead of us. They, for a month yeah. prior, were out in the areas we were about to be kind of scouting and doing all of this work. And when I spoke to him about this operation, he knew exactly what I was talking about because he had been shot, I think, in uh, not in July of the op, but in August, right after he got shot uh, in the same sort of areas that we were in. Um, yeah. So why don't you kind of give me your version of what it was like for a week with, with me attached to the team <laughs> and give me what your experiences were on, on that particular operation? Well, I think it was interesting because like, at that point, we didn't really have females on the front line unless well, there were some sort of specialist. 
you know. Uh, so that was a first one for me, sort of thing. And I and I just remember looking down and just thinking, how small are your feet? <laughs> just like you're not gonna, like if you step on an ID, nothing's gonna happen. They'll they'll probably laugh at you, sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, it was just interesting because like you were just full of energy all the time, no matter what. Just no matter what, you're always like, can I do this? Do you need a hand over here? Oh, it's ammo. I'll bring it, sort of thing. You're always like energetic and willing to do stuff. And I was just like, just sit down, <laughs> just relax. Uh, we're all good here. But uh, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you were on that op because that op was the first one for many for me. I'm sure it was for you as well. But yeah, it's just fun to see you dart about like a little chipmunk running about. I genuinely thought you were just drinking Red Bull all the time. You know, just like so hyperactive. No, that's the and that's the terrifying part. There was no caffeine yeah. involved in my life at that point, so that's you brought, even worse. You brought a good energy to the group, I must say. Well, I appreciate that. I'm I'm glad to yeah, have. So. Um, so we 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 land in country. I'm sorry, we land out in the Pandora District, and we're with you guys. Yep. And so, what was the operational tempo for that for you? Did you find it was faster or slower than any of the ones that you were on prior to? June? It was different because before that I was told this is the real deal sort of thing and I remember being on the helicopter sort of thing on the Chinook going over thinking this is the most awesome thing I've ever done in my life sort of thing I'm flying into battle on you know in a massive metal bird sort of thing I remember you being on the floor because <laughs> you just could not find a seat so they put you up the middle row sort of thing and I remember we, we looked at each other and I was like you know so good sort of thing although I was shit myself on the inside as I like, you know just put a brave face on here sort of thing and then uh, I remember I remember the and you must have heard it as well the, the ting underneath mm -hmm. the, the helicopter because mm -hmm. they were shooting at us and it was hitting and I thought all right this is different like because we, we had me shot before on the, on the Chinooks going in so I was like oh okay this is a bit different you know this is going to be what we trained for sort of thing this is where it's all going to happen I remember mm -hmm. we landed and that tailgate came down and we just, all of us just ran. I don't think I've ever ran so fast in my life. And we all, we all go in position and, and, you know, we go ready to go sort of thing. But from the get-go, from literally getting on the helicopter when we were still in camp, I think everyone knew this was going to be a different, a different kind of operation. Just everyone was what on edge. Was you know, the, what was the objective? Uh, well, this was what? 13 years now, so I can't remember that much. Uh, and I know it was mostly ground gaining. We were just going in and trying to retake some ground that we had lost prior. Um, if I'm correct, if I remember right. There's a lot okay. of happened since then. Sorry, Kels. No, um, don't apologize ever, man. It's it's fine. Listen, yeah. like it's not, it's, it, it's always interesting talking about the past when you look back, yeah. obviously perspectives and things like that, but regardless of of how long ago how long ago it was that operation left a lot of marks on a lot of people uh not just myself not just you not just danny not just um a handful of the other guys but it did and it it left a mark in a way that i think that was the beginning of from what i gather from a lot of people a really really high paced traumatic summer for your unit um based off of 
conversations and uh, people that we've spoken with, but also just our operations seemed like it kicked off like the say the bad luck, but it just, it kicked, it kicked it off. So let's get right into it. You and I were involved in a couple different situations uh, on that operation that were tricky to say the least and a little sketchy and uh, also very upsetting. Um, I don't know how much you would like to talk about it or talk about it at all, but I will give you the floor. Uh, I can start with our, you know, our first engagement with the Taliban that me and you had at the same time. Uh, we had went, I think you went the wrong way. I remember this very clearly, but I'll get into that. Uh, we pulled up in front of a compound sort of thing. And you, you know, when you just look around and nothing feels right, you know, there's mm-hmm. no wind, like the, the branches are not moving. The, there's no birds around, there's no people, you know, it's just too quiet. It just doesn't make any sense. And I remember kneeling down to tie my boot. And when I came back up, all hell broke loose. Like, I had Tracer going past me. I, I, I could hear the crack going past my ear. Or when the round hits the sound barrier, breaks the sound barrier, sorry. The tree branches were falling on me because the trees were just getting lit up crazy. And I remember just engaging, engaging, engaging. And I had the radio at the time. So I was sending up contact reports up to the CEO, well, the OC, sorry, the company commander. And then I peeled back into the compound. And this is where <laughs> me and you officially met. <laughs> it's when you decide to go the wrong way around a compound. And you know the Taliban, like the, the Taliban doors, the, the Afghan compounds, the doors never fit the hinges. So no. it's either a big gap at the top or a small gap at the bottom. They just never fit, no matter how you do it. And I remember just seeing these little feet. I was like, oh no, here we go, here we go. And I had my weapon raised. I was pointing at the door. I was like, as soon as this guy opens the door, he's gone. And you decided to kick the door open, which made it like more like, ooh. And I went to fire, but I had my safety on. And I think that's the only thing that saved you that day. Well, thanks. My 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 incompetence. But it's uh, okay. Incompetence sometimes is what's necessary to keep <laughs> I was like, so hi, so you're Kelsey. Okay, cool. And you're like, what's it? And you're like, yep, yep, good. And then we just sat there, and I think I had uh, wine gums I was sharing with you at a time, which is sweets over here. And yeah, I remember that one quite clearly. Yeah, our very yep. first baptism of fire, we'll call it. Yeah, we definitely had an interesting bunch. It felt like every time we moved from compound to compound, it didn't matter. They were just, they were everywhere and nowhere yeah. all at one time. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And things were kind of rolled like that for the first little bit. And then we walked into. Another situation, which again had that very eerie, quiet, sit still, no movement, no wind, and that was the day that we had the first casualty uh, of that yeah. op. Yeah, yeah, it's the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal. That's how someone uh, described it to me. But you, but you, I remember you getting attached to us, and you ended up in the two platoon uh, headquarter element, which had you and the other medic. Uh, I don't know if I can mention his name, but I'm sure you know who I'm on about. Uh, yeah, I just use his first name, Craig, because all of you are named Craig. Craig. Yeah. Literally all Craig. of you are <laughs> Craig. Craig. It's Craig. All... Yeah, it's Craig. <laughs> yeah, Craig. Craig. 
Craig. Yeah, I can't. All of you. So for anybody that's listening, this is what I had to listen to scream over the radios and pretend like I understood every word that came out of their mouth. So I was with him. Yeah, we I moved up with them um, and I got shifted around a lot. So we were we were with him uh, for that. And I know Danny gave his account of what that was because he was just a little further back. Um, but we we went we we did go through uh, all of that, which is the the stuff that I have been asked by some individuals to not talk about, which I refuse to stop talking about. Um, well, yeah, I think at some point, like I, I stated this at the beginning, when you live through something, you go through something or you experience something. It's unacceptable for anybody else to tell you that it's not okay to talk about it. And it's unacceptable for anybody exactly. else to tell you that it's unacceptable to relive those things and keep those people's memories alive. Whether you like it or not, other people were involved and get to have a say in that conversation. That is my personal opinion. Now I've kept names out of it, out of respect, regardless of those individuals saying that they would rather them not have their names in it. Um, which come to find out actually speaking with Danny on the last episode, you'll appreciate. He spoke with Eleanor before we had the episode and Eleanor, okay. which was Hop which was Hoppo's wife. Yeah. Gave us the okay to talk about Hoppo because she sees it as we do keeping someone's memory and soul and heart and light alive is important. And we need to talk about these stories because if we don't talk about them, we're going to end up like every other veteran in World War II in Vietnam who have traumas and things that have happened and people who have been lost, who have just been lost to time because nobody yeah. has said anything about it. Completely. And plus it's, it's your own experience. So you can talk about all you want. Well, that too. Others like to think it's not, but that's yeah. just not the reality now, is it? Exactly. So you and I were there for that, um, where we lost an individual and we kind of carried on and moved on through that operation. And then you and I had another great encounter together, which was <laughs> a little different. Do you want me to go back on the operation or it's more to jump to? It's whatever you're, listen, man, this is your episode. It's whatever you and how you want to talk about it. Cool. Well, as you said, I think it's a good thing to talk about it, you know especially after what 13 years is a good thing to keep alive sort of thing if that makes sense but mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, I was there just by chance again uh, my platoon commander uh, Captain Gorey he wanted to speak to the platoon commander that you were attached to at the time uh, which was Cahoon I think I'm saying that right Cahoon. yeah Commander Cahoon uh, yeah so we came round sort of thing uh, just me and him because I was the radio op guy and he had an old group with Mr. Cahoon. And I remember stepping inside because I wanted a cigar. And I, and I was told before by the, the boss that he hates the smell of it. So I was like, okay, no problem, sir. You know what? You know what? I'll jump outside. Uh, let's go have it. It's there, actually. And uh, I remember Ross on the roof sort of thing. I was like, do you want a cigar? He's like, nah, no, I'm good. And I remember you guys. And I knew it was you because all I saw was legs and a rucksack again. I was like, well, and this massive long barrel, which is like nearly your height. I was like, yeah, that's Kelsey over there. And Craig was there. And then obviously um, you guys were moving up towards that grape hut where the IED went off, who took out that individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Paige was asking this, uh, this earlier, like, 
Hey, you, have you checked in with yourself today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Have you had enough water? This is your midday check-in brought to you by Midday Squares. Big breath in. <sighs> I'm back at it. Right about it because I knew she knew I was nervous about talking about this sort of stuff and all that because I don't really open up to people as much uh, I should. But um, everything went in slow motion. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I remember mm-hmm. taking cover in very slow motion. I was like, you know, sort of thing. And I just felt it lasted a long time. And then when I came around the cover, that's when the guy on the roof opened up with the Jimpy, uh, the general purpose machine gun. And I remember seeing you kind of like giraffe legs, you know, just trying to get up sort of thing, dazed. And I remember shouting over, uh, get in the fight. But I don't know if you acknowledged me. Uh, I knew you were looking at me sort of thing. So it was like, get in the fight, get in the fight sort of thing. And then I remember the other individual I got injured coming out. Uh, obviously, no body armor on or all that because it got literally ripped off him. And at that point, I was recalled back. But I remember seeing you, Craig, and all that advance forward towards him. But you, you know, that's the most honorable thing I say about law enforcement, armed forces, is you run towards where the, the issue is. You run towards it in order to save other lives. But uh, I was called back because I had the HF radio on my back. So uh, the Sergeant Major needed me. Uh, I had to relay to him. Then he had to call in uh, the Pedro call signs, the PJs. Uh, so I, t- I, took, I, t- I took one last gla- glance and I seen you guys running up towards the compound. I said, okay, they've got this. And my boss grabbed me and said, we need to go sort of thing. So I go in touch with the between sergeant saying, we're on our way back. And then when I got to the compound, uh, it's when the radio traffic started. Uh, so I was relaying to the sergeant major, you know, it was this, do you remember what a zap number is? Yeah. Mm. So the zap numbers were coming through. I was like, okay, who's this? Who's this? Because there's so many people that start with the same initials. You're like, is this guy? No, it can't be because he's over there. You know, it was a lot of like guessing who it was sort of thing. And that, and I think that was the worst part because I had a lot of friends in that platoon. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, it can't be him. It can't be him. It can't be him. Uh but yeah, sorry. And when it came through, uh, the Sergeant Major had to shoot everyone's that number on it, so we knew exactly who it was. Mm. So then we had to go to this field and set up the emergency uh, HLS, the mm-hmm. helicopter landing site, because the PJs, when they deploy, they get there fast. And we knew the casualty who was saying shrapnel uh, was coming to us first. I remember him coming in, dazed, and you know, as he would be, because he, he just had a massive explosion just go off near you and he's just everywhere he doesn't know what's going on his mm-hmm. kit was literally ripped off him due to the explosion mm-hmm. you know so you know yourself that was some force of an explosion sort of thing then he just sat down and kept on screaming the other casualty's name mm-hmm. the the individual we lost and it was heartbreaking because he knew I mean you cannot come away from an explosion that big sort of thing it literally rocked everyone and uh, I remember him just being there day sort of thing. Uh, he, he got given morphine. Um, and I'm about five feet away. I'm on the radio. All right, Sergeant Major, you know, the, you know, the helicopter's coming in, pop smoke sort of thing. So he threw the smoke. And before I peeled away sort of thing, I just gave him a tap on the head. You know, it's all going to be okay sort of thing. And then I went back up to the compound. But some of what remained of the other casualty went past me. And mm. then I knew... The, the sort of, you know, the sort of uh, 
don't know how to put this, the gravity mm. of the situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no. It, yeah. It a hundred percent makes sense. It the yeah. it was a very graphic, uh aggressive situation. And I know I remember I remember very much that was the question was like, where is, where is, and just kept repeating that. Yeah. And, um, I learned a lot more on my last episode with Danny about the Pedro guys. Cause I didn't understand. I had never been outside the wire. I didn't understand. I just Love knew they guys. were. Yeah. So that's what he said to me. He said, if you can ever get one of the oh, Pedro man. guys on the show, you need to have one. So I'm now my, yeah. my goal is I'm looking for a Pedro guy to have a conversation with because I didn't understand who yeah. they were that came in. All I know is they came in and they started shooting aggressively. And it yeah. was the most relieving feeling I've ever felt because everything started to move, like you said, so, so slow. And the impact of what had just happened, I think I, in my personal opinion, I was not ready to move. And I needed, we needed to move. And when they came through and just started opening up yeah. on the field, it was the best, most safe feeling. And yeah. it was almost like this moment of relief. Okay. I can breathe for like three seconds and then back into the compound and then off they went and just sat there. And I remember very much asking for a cigarette and no one would give me one because I didn't smoke. Yeah. And they're like, this is not the time to start. We're not doing this now. So no, no, like these guys are like, you know, like in a movie when they talk with the shit, mm. and then you get the America, you know, it's yeah. them coming in sort of thing. <laughs> Eventually, I was like, yeah, here they come, brass and everything up, and they jumped out with a plate carrier, which was like a bra sort of thing, had nothing <laughs> sort of thing. It's like, all right, God, you're cool. Uh, yeah. Just scooped up the cashier, and oh, it was amazing. But yeah, no, but I remember uh, when he was asking for the other cashier, it was, and we're like, oh, it's a natural because they always work in two, two right. different like uh, so one covers, one becomes the casualty and then the swap. So ah, he's been here already, but you know he's in that helicopter there. He's waiting for you, so hurry up, you know, like yeah. get moving. Um, but yeah, those guys, Jesus. I think the best it, thing it, they did was decide not to tell him that he was really yeah. just right beside him, because that yeah. I think would have sent him through into shock and anybody else into shock but for that matter. He was, he was, he was like he's. Bear in mind, this is the Afghan, mm. the Afghan summer. You know, we're all tanned, like nothing on earth. Uh, but this guy was pale. I mean, ghost white. Mm. But he was losing blood. Obviously, he's a uh, upper part here. Uh, he had been given morphine, so he was just having, you know, a time mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you know, that's a good thing, yeah. And then we cracked on, and off we went, and uh, and then we had some more fun. Um, and we shot a lot of things. A lot of ammunition <laughs> went went down range for that off. Um, do you want to yeah. take me forward on that? Yeah. Well, basically, uh, we retreated into Compound 33, which was about 300 meters from where that incident happened. But because we were taking direct fire from the west this time, so we all kind of like piled in to this compound. And my boss was on the was on the roof straight away, so I had to go up with him, being the radio guy, and I was really in messages. Your and favorite point, person, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't know. Maybe one day. One day I'll forgive him. Maybe one day. That's okay. Yeah. I will. I, I. That is my goal. I will bring you two together, and I will make this happen. Yeah, we'll see. 
I will. That, listen, we, we all start somewhere. Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. It's all right. And then, yeah, I remember leaning back because I was changing magazine because I was literally relaying, you know, like, you, you know, like a busy mum, you're doing everything, you've got your phone there, sort of thing. So I had the radio there, I was trying to do things, I was engaging, I was like, oh, Christ, here we go. And then I spun round to change magazine, and my platoon commander, Mr. Gori, tapped me in the leg and just went, look at that over there, sort of thing. I was like, what? And we're all getting brassed up here. I mean, everything's going ding, ding, ding. You know, there's bits of the compound coming off because we can shot at, and you're sitting there. Just think of an 80s movie, like Arnold in the 80s, firing from the hip. I've no idea what, what you were shouting. It could have been Canada. I don't know. I have no idea. You were just And I thought, and I thought, right, okay. When she needs to change magazine, she'll get down, change, and re-engage. Nah, you stood there, not giving an absolute F-U-C-K. Spun round, magazine out, you checked the other one, put it in, bam, re-engaged the mic. Could someone get this chick off the roof, please? <laughs> Enough sort of thing. But then I think someone shouted out for you and you got in the prone position uh, right beside... Uh... Have you mentioned his name? Or Van. It... Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, okay, Van listen, yeah, okay, I've never talked... I haven't talked to Van. I've been trying to find Van for a long time, but I know he's off living his life. But um, yeah, but yeah I no, think he's that... back in South Africa. Is he? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, because he but, was uh, your, sh you guys call him sharpshooters? Yeah. He wasn't a sniper, right? He was a sharpshooter? No, no, sharpshooter, yeah. There's yeah. different levels of uh, sharpshoot, sharpshootitude. But uh, I remember he, you were on his left, and, and he was engaging, obviously, single shot, single shot, single shot sort of thing. And then, because there isn't design pouches to carry those magazines for the, for the sharpshooter rifle. Mm. So I think he just covered them, like, had one in his pocket and had a few in his rucksack sort of thing so you had to go back down and get them and the rifle was like beside you which was literally i'm thinking a bit taller than you <laughs> like it, it was uh, it's, it was I have like, a picture with it yeah I was, I was like, okay so i'm just sitting there and i'm trying to describe the sound of it it's like a round going through plastic and then doing the ba sound does that make right. sense yeah yeah because like it's kicks like off. spinning through the air after they hit something and it ricochets and spins through the air and then all I seen was like the rifle just lying on your leg, a massive gaping hole at the back of it. And you just not even caring, just like still going, bah, 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 bah. and I don't think you realized until you nope. kind of like peeled back that holy shit. <laughs> no. That bullet, like the bullet struck the rifle. And if that wasn't there, that would, that would have been your leg. Easy. I know Danny sent me a photo of um, Van holding the rifle the other day. And, uh, I looked at it. I was like, Oh my God, that, it just blows my mind. Sometimes when you look back at stuff like that and yeah. you, you realize that, that like all of those moments and all of those things that happened, you can all just change the trajectory of life. So drastically, yeah. um, we, we, we did that. And then we, you know, you and I were in and out of each other's, the rest of the operation. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just an odd kickoff for the rest of the time. I know, when we got back and we got picked up and, and all of that, you guys kind of went off and did your thing. And then I pretty much went off and did mine. And then we stayed in touch, uh, for a little bit afterwards. And we did the ramp ceremony together, um, yeah. for that individual. And 
that was an interesting situation uh, because we were also sending off uh, Canadian. And once that was done, I yeah. went over with yeah. you guys. Um, so that was that, you know, had its own his its own issues um, with me. But after that operation and me leaving, you guys kept moving. You guys kept going and you guys had a hell of a summer. I don't know how much you would like to get into with that. Well, uh, well before I go any further, I'm mm. just going to digress a little bit. The things that happened to us, like you nearly getting shot sort of thing, you know, like all that sort of stuff. The thing that always gets me is we laughed our heads off at it. Like mm. when you were standing up engaging, screaming, go knows what, we all laughed at it. And I think that's something that we need in war zones and in certain professions to like get through it. Uh, and, and and I just wanted to mention that because you, you took it on board so well and you just thought, yeah, cool and you just started laughing your head off which was brilliant to see but um, sorry, yeah so no, no. the Ram ceremony uh, I remember you being behind me uh, you weren't part of the the Black Watch parade if that makes sense uh, I was fourth row and I, had, I was beside Ban actually and uh, if I knew you were there like, I'm really sorry. I would have fallen out. No, it's 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 okay. I wasn't. I had to go. I had to stand with the Canadians when we were yeah. doing the send off there, and then I asked permission if I could break ranks and come over to yours, yeah. and they gave me permission. And so, no, I wasn't supposed to. My marching wouldn't have mat nothing would have made sense. It would have been fine. I I just wanted to be there with those guys and with you guys so that I could do the same yeah. thing. We I did outside the wire, which was try to support in every way that I could possible. I know, but I just mean because you know, knowing that you, knowing now that you were standing there by yourself uh, with no one who you actually fought with, you know, it was actually a bit heartbreaking. And I wish I just knew you were there because I'm sure a few of us would have came over and just stood with you. Oh, you know, that's okay. It's that's just, okay. just like camaraderie that. But yeah, uh, after that we went on more engaging ops sort of thing. Uh, trying to think now you guys were What's gone up? i was gone on hlta for a bit and you guys had cracked yeah, off i know leave. we lost yeah we we had some more canadians that were lost while i was gone i know that they had a few individuals from back um and then and then that's when right after that i had come back and i went back out to the fob and things were going very sideways for me but you guys kicked off again and went out yeah not long after that well, well, we can roll on out. I think we're doing an operation that lasts four days, and then we were back for maybe three days in camp, then going back out again. It was a very rolling on summer sort of thing, constantly mm -hmm. doing operations. And that's mostly because we were working with the Special Forces guys with the SFSG lot, which was uh, a mixture between one pair of guys and Marines that form the Special Forces four group sort of thing. Um, I just think that they were underbanded, and that's why we were filling in those places. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of snatch and grab operations sort of thing. Land, kick a door down, grab a guy, back to camp sort of thing. So we did a lot of that, which I absolutely loved. Uh, it was proper like all the, you know, all the skills and drills, CQB, night vision on, kicking doors down. That was that was it for me sort of thing. But uh, it was noted to be one of the bloodiest summers in Afghanistan. I know that since, you know, the war started and the war ended. It still remains one of the bloodiest. Yeah, I know for for you guys uh, in the unit, you guys took a lot of hits. We you lost a lot of really good people, and uh, in in quite aggressive fashion. Um, 
I know Danny talked a little bit about Hoppo and talked about his life. He had worked with Hoppo all up through training um, and then deploying with him. And then ultimately, uh, Hoppo was a great guy. Hoppo was a great guy. For the time that I had an interaction with Hoppo, he made me laugh uh, several, yeah. several times yeah. by making fun of me and the fact that I was Canadian and there was not a goddamn thing I could do about it. Yeah, no, that. no. He's, he was just, it doesn't matter how bad a situation got, he would find a way to make you laugh. Like, I remember going on up and thinking, why is my stuff so effing heavy? And I didn't realize he had put a cylinder block inside my rucksack. And I'm like, you mother. So <laughs> I remember just throwing it on my foot, like, just off a compound roof. Uh, no, but that guy just, whoever, whenever you're having a bad time in life, even if he didn't even know you, he would come up and try and cheer you up. Yeah, yeah, he and he was a special this, dude. This world's uh, less of a place without him. Yeah, so you guys went through it. Uh, ultimately, Hoppa was lost. A few other individuals were lost on um, yep. that deployment. And I know it, it did some significant damage to every single one of you and obviously the families. When you come back from a deployment like that, what does that look like for you? Uh, I don't think I truly ever calmed down. You know, I've deployed again sort of thing, but I've never, you know, right now I would happily have this room erupt in, you know, a massive firefight and I would, and I would love it. I would be in, in my element. I'll be crawling about the floor, you know, and then that, you know, that's quite weird sort of thing. You know, when I'm walking down the street, I want someone to erupt my world around me sort of thing. But I think that's just something that's ingrained in you. You know, I was 18, as you said, I wasn't fully developed. No, there's a behavioral that is being installed in me now, which I don't don't need anymore. You know, it's it shouldn't be part of me, and I don't know how to get rid of it. But obviously, I have to talk myself down, sort of thing. But you know, I've just never left. I don't think we ever leave the battlefield. If that makes sense. I, I think, think parts just, of us. I think parts yeah. of us never leave the battlefield. I think we choose how much of it we want to come back, and I think we can work on bringing ourselves back. But I do yeah. think there's a part of us, whether we like it or not, not saying it's physical, but like there is a part though that is never, it's either not the same or it hasn't come back because I think you can't go through things in life and act like they never happened or they didn't yeah. have an impact on you. It just doesn't work that way. That's not how the human brain works. We imprint on things we hold on to things we feel things we have emotions towards things and when something traumatic happens it leaves a mark on you um psychologically whether you like it or not so going sure, back yeah. to, going back after a deployment like that for you what was the next what was the next five years like how did someone go from that to then you deployed again in 2012 correct 11 2011 yeah, but uh, well, I came back and I had the biggest chip on my shoulder, you know. I thought the world owed me something mm. after all the shit that we had been through, the friends I lost, you know. And I, I, I remember walking down the street and be like, you know what, these people don't have a fucking clue what's going on. You know, they have no idea that two weeks ago I was getting blown up, shot at, you know, sort mm. of thing, and they're just walking beside me. And I don't know what, I, I, think, I think my ego shot up, sort of thing. Um but I had to learn to become humble fast if I wanted to get through life because I, I know what it was doing to me. I was getting angry with people for no reason whatsoever. 
you know, like I was arguing with my sister. I was like, listen, I've been to war. What have you done? You know, I had a time she was 16, like 15. I was like, okay, okay. Like now I look at it, I'm like, you're such an idiot sort of thing. But yeah, I needed a, a bit of a, an ego check sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I was always on edge sort of thing, you know, like a car backfire. fired. I remember pushing my mother into the, the bushes because a car backfired. I was like, get down sort of thing. She's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Like, sorry, <laughs> uh, the war. Uh, but uh, yeah, sorry. But uh, I made the, the decision to leave after that sort of thing, after coming back from Afghanistan. Because I only had a year after that push. So I signed off, which is like your year notice to leave the military. It's a year notice for us. And I had no intention to go back to Afghanistan whatsoever. And I could move companies. I could put into Bravo Company, uh, the best company I've ever been part of. But I made such good friends in that company to when it came to, I think it was a few weeks before they deployed, uh, I went to my room and the guys were waiting there said, listen, come with us sort of thing. You're our friend, we need you come with us. And I thought, right. I don't know, guys, you know, I'm set up in the civilian world now. And I decided to go and speak to my sergeant major, Paddy Marshall, who to this day is still my mentor. Um, as I said, you know, what's my options here? He said, well, the guys here are all new. We need guys who have been out before. We need senior guys. Uh, you know, there's was, was two of us who were class of senior guys in the company sort of thing. So I was like, I don't know, I don't know. Was like, and then, then the thing that got me turned around and said, I need you to go. And I was like, okay, I'll go, sort of thing. Uh, just because this guy, I mean, he's my, my Captain America, sort of thing. You know, like, I, I look up to him massively. I say, well, if he's asking me to go, I'm going to go. And I'm glad I did. So I redeployed in 2011. And because this time was a winter tour. And as you know, the Taliban tend to use the winter to grow the crops. Well, to kind of get their poppies and all that, get ready for the drug trade. And so I wasn't expecting much, if that makes sense. I just, I was thinking, you know what, it's going to be all right. But I packed for a summer tour, which was a big fucking mistake. Uh, no pheromones, you know, nothing like, I was, oh, thank God for Amazon. Uh, but even back then. But uh, yeah, and it turned out to be nearly as bad as the first one. And Not in was- casualty rate, sorry. And no, and you switched over to a medic at this point then, yeah. Uh, not yet. Uh, it's when I became, uh, it's during my second tour that I made the, the switch to mm. this is not what, this is not me anymore. Uh, but sorry, yeah, uh, I deployed, but I deployed uh, doing what Van used to do. And I was mm. a sharpshooter. But because it was a senior guy as well, I was the violin guy at the front. So I had the metal detector and I was sniffing mm. out IED sort of thing. And uh, I'm glad we never took the amount of casualties we did and deaths like on our first tour, but this tour was heavy on firefights. Just because we got detached and sent to a different unit, my section, and every day we were getting hammered. Like you were stepping out the gate and rents were just landing all around you sort of thing. But yeah. What was the reasoning for that? For, for getting hammered the way you were getting hammered in 2011? It was weird because we went back to a place we wore in 2009 and I recognized it because we had sprayed stuff on the walls and all that. I was like, holy shit, mm. why, why are we here sort of thing? But little did I know the Taliban had took that area back uh, a couple of months prior and I just thought, how is this still happening? It's been two years. 
how have we not gained ground? How, how, how have we not over there? And we're all the way mm-hmm. back here now. I mean, you're talking maybe a mile. How have we lost all this overnight sort of thing? So we had to go back and retake this ground. And we were working alongside the Dutch. Uh, no, sorry, the Estonians. And uh, obviously when they retook ground, they moved into our former facilities, our former compounds. You know, why not? Because it's all enforced and reinforced and, you know, they love it. So we had to take all them back sort of thing. And it was just a battle. Every day for months, it was just a battle, a battle. You know, like over Christmas, it was a battle, just constant. I said the tempo was a lot more than the first one because it was just constant. No matter what was happening, you were getting shot at sort of thing. Um, but in the end, we, we did retake the ground in the end. And, you know, now that we know how Afghanistan ended, what's the point sort of thing? But, um, yeah. I know that was hard for you. I know you and I spoke during the fall um, and we had had yeah. conversations about that. And I understand that that was not... Uh, easy for a lot of people to grapple with and and go through. Um, I'm actually talking with uh, former former Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller. Uh, I think in the next two weeks about that whole pullout and what that looked like. I know the British were heavily involved in in evacuating uh, civilians and individuals who had worked with us out uh canada dropped the ball and sent no one actually lies we sent 73 people to do paperwork and then they left with an empty plane back to canada we didn't take anyone so i know the british were heavily involved with that and i know that based off of the amount of casualties you guys had taken in afghanistan over that stretch period of time that was very difficult for a lot of people to watch and and bear witness to how is it that you have been able to kind of move forward in your life because i know having these two deployments on you um, and seeing and doing what you did throughout all of that. And then watching you transition to the civilian world, how has that been? And really what do you use for coping mechanisms and things to kind of keep you moving forward? A lot, to be honest. Uh, I'll I'll go back to when I I swapped from being uh, what I call a life taker and I became a lifesaver instead. Uh, it's when Stephen got blown up and my next door neighbor. I'm sure I'm sure me and you have spoken about this before, but it's when when he got blown up and I and I, and I took care of him and we got him back. That's when I was thought to myself, you know what, I'm done with the fighting. I'm gonna switch over to the medical side of things. Uh so that was always my goal to go back to my very, very own teenage like plan of, you know, getting involved in the medical services. No, not as a doctor, because, you know, you know me, I'm thick as shit. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I had the plan. That was my plan sort of thing. So I left the military and went to college. Once again, the biggest ego ever, just being surrounded by these guys who are like, bear in mind, I'm 25, two tours of Afghanistan, warfighter, you know, hoorah, all that good stuff. And I'm surrounded by 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds who just cannot put their fucking phones down, listen for two minutes. You know, just, you know, like people that I shouldn't be around because they're just too energetic and too, I'm trying to do something here, but you're really getting on my nerves sort of thing. Mm. There's like 20 people in the class. Yeah, I was studying psychology because I wanted to get into that sort of side of things and help guys who are suffering from post-traumatic stress because obviously, you know, the, the suicide of pen, pen, I'm starting now. The suicide of pandemic is terrible all around the globe sort of thing. But yeah, so I lasted about a year. <laughs> so I got my first like couple of semesters in sort of thing. And then I was like, I can't go on with these people. They need to either put me in a class full of like 
salty people, decrepit people <laughs> who just like you know are there to learn sort of thing, and not to and not to joke around. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. So I found myself in Iraq as a contractor, uh, completely out of the blue, and I deployed uh, as a shift medic. So I was working with the American medics from the 101st and U.S. Navy guys on their camp in Key West. Just in, you know, just in day-to-day, like, sort of, like, uh, sick parade and stuff like that, just make sure everyone was arrived in feature. You know, it wasn't massive mm-hmm. sort of thing. It, it had a couple of mass casualty situations where I had to come out of the box for, but uh, that was always the role I wanted to go into. So when I came back to the UK, I planned to go back and finish off college sort of thing and get my HNC in psychology. And then I got the letter saying, you're being recalled to service. So I was like, yay. Plans never survived contact with the fucking army, tell you that. <laughs> and then, and the worst thing is what, they, they didn't have any positions for medics. So I ended up as a Royal Military Police Officer. And I was just like, what's going on here? This is not me whatsoever. Uh, so I ended up doing that for the next three years. Uh, I was based in Carlisle, away from home, which I hated because obviously with my partner, I was working four days on, four days off, which is a normal police like shift rotation. I was working with the civilian police mostly, um, basically going down guys who like from the base who are drunk and just arresting them, bringing them back, and still getting arrested from the civilian police because they would charge them. I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just those things. Like I, I really didn't want to be there. I didn't right. want to be in that uniform in this position sort of thing. I'd rather be in a helicopter flying about picking up casualties and treating them sort of thing. And it, it wasn't going to happen. So as soon as I could, I found my papers. And then I had three months of termination leave and Tuesday just there was my last day. So. Did you, Did you or do you find that you have any sort of issues afterwards any ptsd type response because it sounds like to me when you're talking about going back to school you had a lot of the same issues i had when they tried to retrain me go back to school being around civilians and having that conversation and trying to be able to relate to people like that it just wasn't happening i couldn't relate to people but have you seen the class i was in it was just like these guys were dicks man like (laughs) like there's like okay, yeah, I'll buckle up sort of thing and I listen. But you see, when you can't, because you've got 19 teenagers who are going through puberty and stuff like beside yeah. you. And it was like two, two of you who are actually like in your 20s and early 30s sort of thing. I guess mm-hmm. you. But uh, I wouldn't say like, I, I didn't really think about it. Like, I know a lot of guys went down a dark road sort of thing by thinking about things they did over there. And I just never let it get into my mind. If it did get into my mind, I would do something else. You know, I would play a game. I would listen to music. Um, I would get in touch with a battle buddy and be like, hey, listen, dude, you know what's happening sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I would just completely block out of my mind. But after a certain point, it gets a bit much and it's it's in your mind no matter what. And I was honest, you know, I, I spoke to my partner about it. I spoke to, him to, my, to my stepfather who I served and, uh, and he got it sort of thing. Paige doesn't get it, but at least she listens. Yeah. And talking about it, guys, it helps just, a lot, sort of thing. Well, that seems to be like the biggest thing is like just being willing to talk about it and needing yeah. and having somebody that's going to listen. Because most of the time it's not that people don't want to talk about it. It's they don't feel like comfortable enough or safe enough or willing enough to have a space to where they can just kind of say everything that they're feeling about it and not be judged and 
um, have some type of repercussion. If you say some really horrific, like face melting situational thing that happened to you, you should be able to say that to those around you. Um, obviously there's a time and place, maybe talking about shooting somebody is not the place to have that conversation yeah. in like a playground when you're watching your kids. But I think there's a time and a place to have these conversations. And that's one of the biggest letdowns and kind of brings us back to where we were at the beginning of this conversation, where we should be talking about these things. We should be having these conversations. Yeah. It is the reason why so many people take their lives is because they don't feel like they can have a safe space to talk about it. They don't feel like anybody will understand. They feel like nobody will know what they went through and that nobody can relate to them, which is just not true. There is plenty of people that can relate, that want to hear, that want to listen, that want to understand and want to be there for you so that you can feel supported and work through something like this. And fortunately, it sounds like you, after these deployments and going into the next transition of your life, have people around you to support you and give you what you need to feel like you can move forward and and be heard. And that's the other thing, feeling heard, feeling like you're not crazy, feeling like these things are normal. I think, uh, I think more, a, a big thing that gets to bear is, is the stigma that comes mm -hmm. with the fact that, you know, if you say to someone, I, I, I remember going to my first uh, job in the hospital when I started working in mental health and there's a veteran there and the staff were like, oh, just be careful because he's, uh, he's, he's been to Iraq, he's got post-traumatic stress, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was like, well, you know, well, I've been to Afghanistan. He says something's wrong with me, sort of thing. And, you know, straight away, sharp, but it's just a stigma. And yeah. I think that's what gets a lot of veterans because it's like, it's not something you can change, sort of thing. Because people are just very easily influenced these days. You know, mm -hmm. one guy with post traumatic stress commits suicide, all of a sudden, we're all going to do it, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, it just gets passed on and it becomes Chinese whispers and it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, but I, it's I think, difficult. Very. But I think the best thing you could do is surround yourself with people who get it. Like, I've got the best group of fire bodies who have been through it, not necessarily a matter, but they've been through it. You know, you know, uh, I remember when I was having a, a hard time a couple of years back, I was getting in touch with you, and me and you were having conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just those things. But yeah, I think but just being also willing. Being yeah, willing, exactly. Man. And at the same time, just look after yourself. Go out running, you know, like go for a swim, do something proactive. Be a cyclist. No offense, Kelsey. Uh, <laughs> I hate them. I fucking hate them. Oh, I just want to hit them all in my car, honestly. All of you, every person I know, you all despise. Everybody <sighs> but Dean Stott despises the spandex. And everybody needs to get on the fucking board with the spandex because the spandex are here to stay, my friend. And cycling is really good for your mental health. Also, it builds a sweet ass and great legs. And Can cycling imagine me is spandex? amazing. I Can would pay money. Spandex? I'd pay money. Okay. I, I'd pay money well, to see that. That would be hilarious. We'll discuss rates later. But, uh, okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. I think physical fitness, man. So, like, what is it that you do that you find that's really helpful for you? Uh, just do, like, I never did it in the army, and I, and I should have just lift weights. You know, mm. I left the army, and I and I think a lot of people do this. They leave the military, and then they get into it so easy, and they just keep it up, sort of thing. But uh, that and running, uh, just pushing yourself to a limit of where. Obviously, I'm getting older now, so the limit's not as what it used to be, but. It's just challenging yourself as much as possible. Like I've got the Pentland Hills, which is the the the, the national park 
right right behind my house sort of thing. So I do go up the hills with my body armor on and run about sort of thing. Uh, I, I, I get together with my friends and we do Spartan races, you know, just stuff like that sort of thing. But, mm-hmm. but that's your self-care, but you need a group care. And as I said, just surround yourself with people that get what the fuck is going on mm-hmm. sort of thing, if that makes sense. Social- like, but... Socialization, socialization, stop hiding in these little holes in our houses and stop pretending like we can't be there for one another. I'll, I'll give you an example of battle buddy tood, we'll call it. Uh, battle buddy sledgehammer. Uh, you remember when I was going through that stuff with the ex who was, you know, the very abusive relationship. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to end it. I've had enough. This is it. And I just said to him, you know, thanks for being the best man you can be. You know, sorry. Okay. Thanks for being the best man you could ever be. You know, you're a good mate. And thank you for sticking by me, sort of thing, and blah, 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 blah. And then, literally, 45 minutes later, my door gets booted open because he drove a journey who takes about two hours. He floored it for 120 miles down the A9 and literally kicked my door in. The door was unlocked, but nah, drama, right? Boom, <laughs> door wide open, sort of thing. And he came and spoke to me. He's like, okay. And that's when I made a decision to be like, you need to get the fuck out of my house. The other, we'll call it the spawn of Satan. Uh, but I remember a few weeks before that, I mentioned it to you and you got on the phone to me straight away. And what is it you said? Don't be a dickhead or something. But uh, Yeah, don't be a dickhead. Don't. Yeah, don't make, be a dickhead, man. <laughs> don't make me have to fly over the one place I want to visit and actually visit to have to go to a funeral. Don't like, do well, it. Well, that's me convinced. But uh, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. so I would do that for him now. I would absolutely float it. If that's... I could swim that far, I'll come and save you. But it's just meh. It's a little far to swim. It's a little cold. Yeah, Not yeah. very many people want to come to the communist country of Canada right now. So oh, I yeah. just stay away. Yeah, fair. I'd stay away from it, my friend. Um, but listen, Watson, I. I'm always and I always have been grateful for your friendship and for your space that you have given. Oh, thanks, man. But the space that you have given for me to other vets and other people and the stuff that you've been through, man, you've, you've pulled out, you've come through and you've, you, you know, you're, you're not shy, but the fact that there's still a struggle and there's still things that can be done, but there's ways to progress and keep learning and healing and growing from these things and that they don't have to be the marks, they don't have to always be the things that we're defined by, but they can be the things that make us stronger and give us the platform to grow and be these new people. And I think, I think war does a lot to people, whether we want to admit it or not, but it does. And I think if you live in that forever, you'll only live in it for so long, but if you live in it and you use it and you reach out and ask for help and support, then it can, it can be a superpower. It really can. Yeah. Massively. Yeah, of course. And I know that now you're on a new journey and a new path and you've got a new partner that has been supportive and that has been a really key thing to your healing and growing. And um, I'm grateful for her in your life because it's nice to know that there's others that are feeling as supported as I feel in my life and know that they have someone to talk to and that someone will listen. And that's a huge thing. Um, So for the next steps for you, where do people find you if they want to check you guys out? Where would they find all of your social medias? Uh, just just Instagram and Facebook. It's DLF underscore Chris on uh, Instagram and Chris and Page 16, although she contributes nothing to TikTok uh, for TikTok. 
Your TikTok's hilarious. I love it. I love the green screen stuff. I love the mockery. I, I love it. It's it's a good follow and it's a good time. And I do appreciate it in my life. So um, thank you so much, my friend, for being on this episode. And uh, we'll make sure to put all the stuff in all of the bios so that people can check you guys out and we'll have you on again. But uh, thank you then. And thank you always for being in my life, Watts. Always. Everyone else. It's Chris Watson. We'll see you all next week.